okay. All right. Uh, well, I'll hand it over to you, Bonnie. Uh, go on as long as you like. Most most of these are twenty to thirty minutes, but it can be shorter, it can be longer, and then we'll open for discussion. So it's all yours. Thank you. I appreciate that, Charlie. So I'm Bonnie, and I'm an alcoholic. And my sobriety date is November 11, 2014. So I'm coming up on eight years soon. And um, uh, I want to tell my story, um, pretty much how it's outlined as to how I drank, what happened, and what it's like now. And um, I don't want to go into a long drunk log, but there's certainly parts of it that I need to tell. And um, uh, I guess I probably want to start with my family dynamics. So I'm the youngest of four daughters, and I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. And my parents grew up in the Depression era. Um, I don't think that they ever took a drink in their entire lives, and I don't understand that. Um, I, I just truly don't. But um, uh, I was a tomboy. I was the only one out of the four girls that was that was a tomboy. I was told at a young age by my sisters that I was the black sheep in the family. I had to ask what that meant because I didn't know. And I remember at that point feeling like I was defective and unlovable and unworthy. And that became the core of my being. At the age of uh, seven, I remember wanting to die and not knowing how. And later in life um, as an adult, in fact, just uh, several years ago, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, anxiety, PTSD, and uh, dissociation. And, and um, so I used alcohol as my solution. I used it to self-medicate and as well as drugs. And drugs is definitely a part of my story. Um, when I was uh, in second grade, I think it was, my mother woke up one day and she was deaf. And she had had no signs of that leading up to it. And at that time, at least here in the United States, um, Valium was prescribed for anything and everything. Um, and if somebody had the thought of a sore throat, Valium was prescribed. And so that was in, that was in the medicine cabinet in the kitchen. I remember I was somewhere around 10 or 11 and just out of curiosity, I thought, you know, let me try one of mom's pills now. So I must have been an addict to begin with, right? Um, who, who out of curiosity goes to that on their own without peer pressure? And I did. And I instantly liked the way that it made me feel. It changed the way that I felt. And I used alcohol and drugs my entire life to change the way that I felt. If I felt bad, it would help me feel good or better. If I felt good, it would make me feel even better from that. Um, and, and the feeling that I, that I tended to want to escape my entire life was fear. You know, if I, if I boil everything down to it, fear was that feeling. And um, uh, now I talked about I talked about my mother's pills and when I was somewhere around 12, I was babysitting and I was babysitting for these people from the, this Southern Baptist church. And again, alcohol was not part of, it, it was, it was taboo from this Southern Baptist. And yet these people had wine in their fridge. Now they didn't know how to drink either because they had red wine in the fridge. Now who does that? Right. 
But I remember out of curiosity, trying that wine and man, I did not like the way it tasted, but I sure liked the way it made me feel. And um, they never said anything to my parents, I'm sure, because they would have had to admit that they that they were drinking. Um, and and I did that a few times whenever I babysat. Now, I didn't do it when the kids were awake. I did wait until the kids were asleep, at least. Um, but but, you know, I did that a few times and um, I uh, I never um, as as I met as I met people and made friends that were smokers and drinkers and drug users um, as an early teen, I never um, used or drank with somebody that drank more than I did. I was always the one that outdid and I never tried. It just happened. Um, and, and my, uh, alcoholism and drug addiction progressed, um, as, as I was in my teens and particularly anytime that there was a trauma, um, a trauma would trigger, a uh, deeper progression of my addiction. And, um, uh, I ended up, um, when I was 16, uh, my parents found out that my boyfriend was a drug dealer and they threatened to have him arrested. So I threatened to have them killed. Now, um, you know, what, what kind of sanity is that? Right. It's not. And I remember being hauled away in the back of a police car to a psych hospital where I spent a month. And they had me so drugged up in that hospital and my boyfriend was dropping drugs over the fence. So I was not only medicated, but I was self-medicating on top of that. And um, I was suicidal. I remember um, at one point being taken to a park with some people um, from this psych hospital and finding some glass on the sidewalk and trying to get somewhere where I could slash my wrists. And um, the counselor that was with us wrestled that glass away before I could do anything. And, and um, you know, and, and so here I was actively suicidal, whereas before I'd had the thoughts, but I didn't know how. And um, one day my parents and one of my sisters came and picked me up from this psych hospital and I thought they were taking me home and instead they drove me to a rehab facility in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was, I was growing up in Savannah, Georgia. I didn't tell you that, but um, so they drove me to Atlanta, Georgia to a rehab facility that um, was, it, spe it um, specialized in youth and it was a three month long uh, rehab. And so I was, I was there getting sober and, and going to meetings there at the facility and they would take us to some outside meetings as well. Um, and uh, um, when I was in that facility, my parents made a decision that I learned about when I got home. And that decision was that they were gonna move to Saudi Arabia. Here I was and I was 16 and they were gonna move to Saudi Arabia. And um, I still had two years of high school to go. And so they were going to put me in a boarding school and they had pamphlets for me to figure out what school anywhere in the world that I wanted to go to. And I was afraid. Here I was newly sober. I didn't know, I didn't know how I was going to stay sober. 
Um, I wasn't I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay sober and I was being left abandoned. And um, my uh, oldest sister, who was married, had two babies, lived in Macon, Georgia, which is just south of Atlanta. Um, and uh, they invited me to come and move in with them. So I lived with them. I finished high school there in Macon. Um, fortunately, I was close enough to Atlanta where I could go back and forth um, most weekends and spend time with people that I had been in rehab with, go to NA meetings there. Um, I was going to AA meetings in Macon, but everybody there was what my age is now. So they were old. <laughs> and uh, and I remember not really feeling like I felt in, like I, like I fit in. But I did fit in from an addiction standpoint, from an alcoholism standpoint, regardless of the age. And um, eventually some younger people started showing up and uh, uh, there was a need for NA in that area. And so I started NA and I remember that we had a lot of fun and we took meetings to other towns in the area as well. We took we took not only NA meetings, but AA meetings to other towns. We took them into jails and into institutions. And I had a lot of fun being sober at that age. Um, and then I got into college and my second semester, I remember thinking, you know, drugs was my problem. Never was it alcohol. I can drink. And so I started drinking and started going to bars. And very soon after that, drugs started entering the scene again. I knew that I had to sober up and I knew that A was a place that I could go to and that, and that that would work. Somehow it would work. And so I got sober again and being newly sober, I ended up meeting the man that I married. Um, he was not in the program. His mother was, she had set us up on a blind date. Not long after, after being married, trauma entered in my life again. And I didn't know what to do. And so I crawled back in the bottle and I stayed in that bottle for 24 years until um, 2008. And um, when I came back into the rooms in 2008, I was a highly functioning alcoholic. When I say highly functioning, I was, um, I still had my career, um, which was my identity, by the way. I, um, still had vehicles in the in the driveway. I still was married. I still had um, relationships, the best you can have with teenagers anyway. Um, and and so I was highly functioning. And I I could see where I was powerless over alcohol, but I could not see where my life was unmanageable. And that's that first step in the 12 steps, right? And, and I was a workaholic. When I say I was a workaholic, um, I, I, I would work at my desk until 1 or 1.30 most every morning and then be back at it at 4.30 in the morning. And I did that for decades. Um, now, at night, I was drinking while I was working. I um, thought that I produced well. I don't know. <laughs> you know, how can you produce well and drink, right? Um, but I continued to keep getting promoted. So who knows? Um, and, uh, and I remember um, when I came into the rooms um, in 2008, I didn't want to be told what to do. Um, I was that kind of a person. 
And to give you an idea as to how bad that was, uh, I, I traveled a lot and I had a navigation system in my vehicle and, and I did not want to be told what to do. And I didn't even want my, I didn't even want my navigation system telling me that. So I muted it. <laughs> and yet I still found my way around. Sometimes I missed my, missed my turns, but I did it. Um, when, when I, uh, uh, came back into the rooms, I struggled and I struck, you know, I struggled to stay sober. Um, people didn't know what my home life was and I had no support at all. Um, I had to go to meetings in secret. I had to go during during lunchtime um, if I would ever go to meetings. Um, and that that was because of what was going on at home. And um, in 2013, I ended up leaving that marriage, which I needed to do years before and had been unable to. Um, I was drinking at, at this point, I was drinking uh, two liters a day, hundred proof vodka, eating, eating uh, handfuls of Ativan at the same time. How I lived through that, I don't know. Very suicidal, trying, trying to die, being angry every morning that I woke up. There was an incident with a gun. I won't go into that, but there was. Um, I wound up in a rehab facility and uh, insurance only paid for two weeks and then they would do outpatient. And um, uh, I sobered up for several months and then those feelings and thoughts started entering back in from an event that was going on. And, and um, so what did I do? I turned to alcohol again and um, very quickly was right back at the same levels that I was drinking before. Um, I uh, uh, had a mental breakdown, a total mental breakdown. Um, uh, you know, I told you the quantities that I was drinking and, and the pills that I was eating at the same time. And I remember I, my brain melted down and why I don't have a wet brain today, I don't know. Um, I, I remember going to meetings with people that I had been in meetings with for years, and I could not tell you who they were. I didn't know their names. I remember them passing around a phone list for me. These were people that I had their phone numbers in my phone already, but I didn't know who they were. And, um, and I remember how scary that was. And I, um, uh, I, I ended up, you know, I continued to keep relapsing and people still kept telling me to, to show up at meetings, to keep coming back. Even at times when I would show up drunk and I'd have my water bottle full of vodka and I was not a loud and boisterous kind of a drunk, I was a quiet one. And so they would let me sit in the meeting and stay in the meeting. And then I remember I remember some of these friends wrestling the keys away from me after the after a meeting and driving me home and telling me, come back again tomorrow. And this happened over and over and over again. And I kept coming back. I, I wanted it, but I didn't know how to get it. I kept relapsing and I couldn't understand why. And the more I relapsed, the easier it was to relapse and the harder it was to keep that bottle put down. Um, I was listening to uh, a song just a little while ago and um, I listened to some, some country music and there's one song that says, um, 
I, uh, I told myself to quit drinking, but I don't listen to drunks. Well, that's the way I was. Um, you know, I, 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 I couldn't listen to myself. I couldn't do it myself. And, um, in 2014, I ended up overdosing twice. I overdosed once in September and then again in November. And, um, in between those two overdoses, well, first off, after the first one, I wound up in a psych hospital where I spent two and a half weeks and they wanted to send me to a rehab and I refused. And, um, it was a few weeks after that. And I was having a conversation with a dear friend of mine. And she said, Bonnie, when is alcohol going to stop being your solution? Well, nobody had ever told me that I was using alcohol as my solution at that time. Again, I knew that I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. I knew my life was unmanageable, but I didn't realize that I kept using it as my solution. And, um, and when she asked me that, I remember, I remember just hesitating and, and halting the conversation. And eventually I said, I don't know, Kathleen, I don't, I don't know. And um, the next month I ended up overdosing again. And that was on November 11, 2014, which is my sobriety date. Um, I wound up in a psych hospital again, this time allowing my 21 year old son to commit me. And while I was at that hospital, they convinced me to go to another rehab facility. And this time they found, they found a facility for me that treated dual diagnosis. And that's what I needed because I had a mental health issue as well as my addiction. And this particular facility, Desert Hope in Las Vegas, um, they, uh, uh, they had a psychiatrist on staff and this psychiatrist was able to help diagnose my issues and um, put me on medications, try out medications and regulate them while I was there. And while I was there, I heard stories from people that worked there because every single person that worked there was in recovery at some point. And when I say every person, I mean the housekeepers, the dietitians, the nurses, the van drivers, the, the receptionists, the, the therapists, even the psychiatrist, every single one of them was in recovery. And I, I was exposed to stories of, of how these people recovered and every single one of them had a different story. Um, some of them were in AA, some of them were in NA, some of them didn't go to meetings, some of them worked the 12 steps, some of them had sponsors, some of them didn't, some of them um, went to church, some of them didn't, some of them just, you know, figured out how to do it on their own, but they were all in recovery at some, some level, some path, they each had their own path. And up to this, up to this point, during my seven years of trying to get sober, I had had somewhere around 18 plus sponsors. I quit, I quit counting. And that was in seven years. And every single one of them had told me that I had to do it their way or else I wasn't going to get sober and stay sober. Well, that was 18 ways of doing it. And so that meant 18 paths. And, and I didn't realize until I was at Desert Hope that that there was a path that I had to find and it was not mimicking somebody else's it was my own it was my own that I had to find and I had been um and and all of this time it was traditional AA that's all there was 
Um, you know, obviously there was not the Zoom explosion. I had not been exposed to anything secular. I didn't even know it existed. And, um, and uh, I remember um, uh, when I was first exposed to it, I was, it was in 2016, I'd had a back injury and I was in a lot of pain at night. And um, I, I remember sitting out on my patio, smoking cigarettes and um, wishing the pain would go away and it wouldn't. And I was on my computer and some, somehow I found Beyond Belief podcasts and I started listening to these podcasts and I was exposed to secular AA for the first time in my life. And while I was listening to this, I thought, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina needs some secular AA and I wish somebody would start it. And I ended up starting it because I didn't know anybody else that would. And I started it because of my own need. And uh, many other people showed up because they needed it as well. And today there's three meetings a week there. And, and with COVID, uh, at one point they were on Zoom for a couple of years and it was such a gift to be able to join those meetings and to, and to see them and, and um, to reestablish some friendships, some old friendships. But um, uh, anyway, so um, while I was getting sober, I was able to surround myself with these people that just loved me when I couldn't love myself and they lifted me up and they met me and they accepted me for who I was and where I was. And they didn't try to change me. And um, they accepted the fact that I was an atheist and um, there, you know, not everybody in the meetings were like this, but I, I surrounded myself with this small village of people that were, that, that, that became my, my tribe, my village. And um, I, I didn't know how I was going to be able to stay in these meetings because the word God kept coming up in the traditional meetings. And this friend of mine who had asked me when alcohol was going to stop being my solution, she would sit next to me and I would always sit in the corner because um, I had to see what was coming at me and I couldn't have anybody sitting behind me. Again, my mental state was just not well. And, but when the word God came up in these traditional meetings, and you know, it comes up in every single one of them, I couldn't reach under my chair and grab my keys and my phone quick enough and make a scene running out of the room, running out of the building and peeling my car out of the parking lot quick enough. And I was making scenes every time. And, um, and people were not, were not tolerant of me. I was not tolerant of them. Um, I, I didn't know how I was going to be able to, to find my path. I didn't know how I was going to be able to stay sober. And this friend of mine would sit next to me and she saw this happening several times. And she ended up putting her hand on my knee every time the word God would come up and she would push down so damn hard. I couldn't have stood up if I tried. And, um, and she would just whisper to me, Bonnie, just stay, just stay, just stay. And I did. And 
I had to figure out how I was going to be able to stay. And so what I ended up doing, um, I took the pocket size big book, you know, the one that you can stick in your, in your back pocket. And I made a list of words that just really got under my skin. And there were words like spiritual and God, faith, divine, higher and power, um, spiritual experience and and i i spent time and i went to four or five different dictionaries and i wrote down the definitions i didn't read i just wrote 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 and i wrote related words and then after i after i was finished writing i went back and i read those definitions and those related words that i had written down and i underlined those that i could buy into those that those that those that meant sense to me and an example is uh god you look back in um the dictionary i think it was written it was written in the 20s and i think it's called a noah dictionary um today it's a webster but you can look it up online and there was a one word related word or definition for the word god and and it's good i could buy into good not god but good um uh you know higher power i couldn't go there with a higher power either because uh, my mother had abused me as a child my husband had abused me in marriage and they both were higher than i was they were bigger they were taller they were more powerful and so i couldn't go there with higher power either and i didn't know how i was going to make my way through the steps Again, it was traditional AA. And I finally found a sponsor who, like I said, accepted me and met me where I was and she didn't try to change me. And she knew that I, I had to find my way through the steps in a non-traditional way. And I was able to do that. I found hope in the, I found hope in the program. I found hope for the first time. Um, you know, as I said, I couldn't go there with higher power, but in step two, I found hope. And that was by working the step backwards. I had not had a good mental health stability. I, I could see where I had been insane. And so I looked at that first, and then I, I developed a list of things that possibly could help me get healthy. And they became my resources. And so it was not a higher power, it was resources that could help me get healthy. And I found hope in that third tradition that says we only have to have a desire to stop drinking. Um, and I found hope in, um, you know, in, in uh, traditional meetings, they read how it works every time. And I found hope in those words of that there are those of us that have grave emotional mental disorders, but yet they too can recover because I felt like I was one of those. Um, and, uh, you know, through, through COVID, I have found that the Zoom explosion has just been wonderful in the sense that it's connecting all of us from all over the world at various meetings and, and, you know, today I'm sponsoring a woman that lives in Montreal and I'm in the mountains of North Carolina. How cool is that, right? And I'm speaking to uh, friends that I have made in Ireland and Kentucky and 
and um, you know, just throughout the world here on this meeting. Um, I'm grateful that AA is big enough and broad enough that, that it accepts people. Um, maybe not everybody in traditional AA is this way, but I have found a lot of people in traditional AA that accepts me as an atheist. And I have found people that accept people of different religions and different beliefs and different disbeliefs and, and um, you know, just different walks and different paths. And, um, you know, and, and, and today I understand what a spiritual awakening is. And I know that um, a lot of people in secular A have trouble with those words, but, in, in, I'm not a big book thumper, but in the big book on page 27, it describes a, a spiritual experience as being a change in ideas, emotions, and attitudes. And that's it. It, it doesn't say anything about God. It says a change in ideas, emotions, and attitudes. Well, I've had that. And when I say I've had that today, alcohol is no longer my solution, right? That's a change in ideas, emotions, and attitudes. Um, today I have my sobriety, I have my sanity, I have my family, I have friends, I have a house that I built, um, I have work that is part-time, I was told at one time that I would never be able to work again, and I'm finally able to work some part-time, I'll never be able to do full-time again, but that's okay, um, I have two dogs, I have a truck, um, and I say I have a truck because I live in the mountains, so I kind of need one. Um, I'm able to pay my bills and uh, I'm empowered to take charge of my life, not control, but charge of it. And today I know that I'm worthy. I remember those words coming out of my mouth for the first time. It was soon after COVID had started and I was on one of these Zoom meetings and I found myself saying that that I'm a worthy person today and I'm worthy to draw that next breath. And I had not felt that way my entire life. And where these words were coming from, I had no idea, no idea. And it was after the meeting and I sat down and it was, do I really believe those words and where in the hell did they come from? And I, I really explored that. And, and I came to the understanding that yes, I do believe those words today. I do believe and I do know that I'm worthy. And um, life is not perfect. Life still happens. Uh, change is inevitable. And change is not always, it doesn't always feel good. Um, you know, I, I get that uh, uh, daily stoic. Um, and there was something, there was something the other day, I'm going to read this, and it has to do with change. It says, let's also say that change is neither good or bad, it simply is. It can be greeted with terror or joy, a tantrum that says, I want it, I want it the way it was, or a dance that says, look, something new. And today I have something new. And, um, I want to thank you for having me today and letting me speak and letting me share. And um, with that, I'm going to pass.